Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Earlier this year, the Pew Research Center released a study on the religious landscape of our country. It found that Connecticut, like most of New England, is much less religious than other places like the South. On first blush, this isn't surprising, but when we think about how Massachusetts and Connecticut were founded by Puritans who were known for having strict religious beliefs, we wondered, how did we become less religious? Today, where we live, we're looking back at our Puritan past to see how religion developed in our state and how that past has shaped our faith communities now. We'll talk with a historian about our religious roots and a local pastor to find out how the role of religion has evolved in Connecticut. You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Do you consider yourself religious, or do you prefer living in a more secular environment? What role does religion play in your life? We want to hear from you at 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live, or email at wherewelive at wmpr.org. I want to welcome into the studio Andrew Walsh. He's Associate Director of the Greenberg Center at Trinity College. Welcome to Where We Live. Thank you. Good morning. So we, we brought you in here to talk about our Puritan past. Um, I was thinking back to my school days. I actually grew up in Pennsylvania, so mm-hmm. I'm not a native New Englander. But when I think about the Puritans, I think of them as strictly religious, cold, very drab. Is that accurate? No. <laughs> okay. Um, they've had a bad rap okay. in American popular culture for about the last 200 years. Um, it's a pretty stern crowd in many ways, but the idea that they were puritanical in the sort of no fun uh, sense is wrong. Uh, H.L. Mencken used to say a Puritan was someone who had the you know, endless fear that somewhere someone was having fun. Uh, and they weren't like that. But the, by contemporary standards, their religion was a very stern and uncompromising form of Protestantism. And... Uh, it made New England a peculiar place in the 17th and the 18th century. It was a kind of region of the country that most other English people avoided because they thought the Puritans were way too much. Um, and, uh, you know, we could, we, this kind of conversation could go in many ways. So you pick which way you want it to go. Well, why did they get that reputation? Well, um, The Puritan episode in America starts in the middle of huge cultural conflict in Europe. There are 150 years of wars of religion, uh, pitting various groups with their own interpretations of religion against one another. And, you know, the sort of shorthand version of history many people have absorbed is that the Puritans came to America to, for, their, for religious freedom. That's the way things have been sort of processed. What they really came here to do was to run their own communities according to the rules that they perceived as the good ones. And so what they were interested in doing was, you know, constructing and maintaining a very clear-cut holy society, what they would have called a Bible commonwealth. And they're, you know, a sort of manifestation of reformed Protestantism which was an international kind of European movement involving people like John Calvin and the Scots and the Dutch and the Swiss and some Germans. 
Um, and they wanted to leave England, which they thought of as compromising too much uh, in order to build a holy society. Uh, John Winthrop, the first governor of Massachusetts, told the Puritans coming over on the first boat on the Arabella that their job was to build a city on a hill so that the other English people could see how to do it right. And so their rules are very clear, and they're not interested in individual expressions or dissents. They're interested in a coherent, theologically, everyone facing in the same direction kind of society. And the reality is everyone doesn't face it the same direction. And so there were lots of tensions over those sorts of things. And many people chose to avoid that kind of place. So many of them were in Massachusetts in the Bay Colony. How did they end up in Connecticut? Um, that's a, you know, many of the answers here are kind of practical. Uh, Cambridge, Massachusetts was a lousy place to be a farmer. Uh, the Connecticut Valley, especially around here, was a great place to be a farmer. So they decided they would rather be farmers here than there. And three, com three communities from the Boston area came in 1634, 35, and 36 to found Wethersfield, Windsor, and Hartford. And that's how the, the, the deal got going. And they, uh, you know, had a relationship with Massachusetts, but by the end of the 1630s had spun themselves off into their own colonial structure, which they took advantage of that process to make themselves really independent of the English government and spent the next 200 years trying to fly under the radar uh, and not to have the English tell them what to do or the other English tell them what to do. So they were very stern, and they had uh, their beliefs. If we were to walk into a church in 1645, Connecticut, um, or a meeting place where the, the Puritans led their service, what would we experience? Um, you'd experience sitting with the entire community in church on Sunday morning, probably for three or four hours, an hour and a half of which would be a sermon. There would be no form of decoration in the church, no crosses, no crucifixes, no religious imagery. There would be some singing, a lot of praying, and a lot of listening to sermons. So what's, what gives them the reputation for sternness, like other Reformed Protestants of this period, is that their interpretation of the human ability to solve its fundamental problems in the world and with God is zero. People can do nothing to... Um, turn to God to do, the, to do the good. They are utterly, in Calvinist language, depraved. There's no possibility that without God's direct intervention that you can do anything good. And so as they reflected on that, they, um, you know, built on earlier building blocks in Western European Christian theology, um, which really emphasized that God was totally sovereign and we were totally depraved. We we're couldn't do anything by ourselves. And the, the Puritan version of this was towards, skewed towards the hard end of this kind of stuff. Um, you were saved only if God decided you were saved. Uh, there was nothing whatsoever you could do to promote your own salvation or your own good relationship with God. Um, and this is, there are elements of this deep in the Western Christian tradition, but you know, it's useful to think of God's grace in, in a phrase of the 5th century theologian Augustine, who got a lot of this train rolling. He said, God's grace is like being shot in the back with an arrow. You don't have anything <laughs> to do with it. And so you couldn't pray for it. You couldn't ask for it. You couldn't get it. It came to you if God decided that you were going to get it. And in the 
version of predestinarian theology that the, the Puritans entertained, this was a decision made by God before the world was created, whether you would be saved or not. Um, and that is a pretty bleak set of interpretations that they thought that's just the truth. And you, ha you have to come to terms with that. And that the good news was uh, because of the life and sacrifice of Jesus, some people were going to be saved by God. But you could never understand why that was and which people would be saved and which would not be saved. Um, and that created a lot of anxiety around the question, am I saved or not? One of the differences between the 21st century and the 17th century is that um, my mind just went blank. <laughs> we and were so talking this, this about the, how bleak uh, the Puritan well, religion was. They, they thought it was reality as, as, as revealed. They didn't think that Jesus came to save everyone. They, kept, they thought that Jesus came to save some people, the saints, the elect. Uh, and that whether you were elect or not was completely outside your hands. That didn't relieve you, however, from the obligation to live a godly life. The hardest thing that people is that you were supposed to go to church every day, every Sunday. You're supposed to live according to uh, godly rules, whether you were saved or not. And they, they don't draw the conclusion that there, if there's nothing in it for me, I'm not paying attention to this. When I said at the beginning they wanted to have a society, they wanted to have a society where a few people are saved and everyone behaves according to the rules. And that's um, tough. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We're looking at our Puritan past uh, to ask the question of how religion evolved uh, in Connecticut, especially when we look at in the context of a study done by the Pew Research Center earlier this year that found Connecticut is a fairly uh, is one of the least religious states in the country. Can I, can I quibble with that briefly? Sure. The question and the rankings developed from that question in the Pew study ask the question, are you very religious? And the answer is it true in New England, relatively small percentage of people say they are very religious. However, about 75% of people in Connecticut, maybe even a bit more than that, 77, say they are religious. So the, the rating developed on mm -hmm. the basis of a question saying very religious is probably misleading because of the kinds of religions that are uh, prevalent around here at this point don't encourage a lot of people to say they're very religious. You're gonna, yeah, but religion yeah. is not front and center if you were to look at communities like in the South where everyone right. talks about the right. church they belong to. Let's, Evangelical yeah. Protestantism is not very strong in New England. It's, in fact, as weak as it gets in, in uh, the United States in New England. Um, there are other, and, but on the other hand, there are an awful lot of Roman Catholics, and many of them practice a kind of form of piety, which is not very ostentatious, in which they're not encouraged to go around and saying, I wear my religion on my sleeve. It's also the case that from the middle of the 19th century to the middle of the 20th century, New England was torn by religious disputes between Catholics and Protestants. And around here, people learned that it would be better not to fight all the time about everything. And so they tended to retreat into communities of their own on these on these sorts of matters. And now we've moved beyond that. This is a place where uh, 
you know, the, the, the ground rules are pretty secular. But if you look carefully, there's always a lot of religion going on. I wanted to bring into the conversation a clip from uh, when that study came out. Uh, WNPR spoke to David Rusin. He's mm -hmm. a retired professor of religion and society at the Hartford Institute for Religion Research. Um, and he said that Connecticut, pe Connecticut residents are actually more spiritual than religious. Can we hear that? They're much more um, vague or abstract or laid back uh, in, in their religious approach. It's not the kind of personal relationship strong sense of uh, God as rule giver. It's much more of a spirituality, uh, a, a belief in the transcendent uh, without a lot of specifics. And do, do you agree with that? I think broadly I agree with it. Um, I'd, I'd say that uh, maybe you'd put it in a different way that m most people are here are influenced by what's called liberal religion which isn't the kind of religion that we were just talking about and which isn't dogmatic or doctrinal. Certainly many more people than 50 years ago subscribe to very loosely linked religious practices. That, and, and the way that I'd really explain the change is to say that 50 years ago, religious identity was inherited. It, it depended on who you, who you were born to and what kind of a community you grow up in. In 21st century America, not exclusively but increasingly, religion is a matter of personal and individual choice. And most people still just choose to describe themselves as religious, but they don't necessarily sign on to whole programs. Now, we don't know the degree to which this was really true in the past because survey research has been only going for 50 or 60 years. And about 40 years ago, survey research was discovered by asking people questions that it's very common for people not to buy the whole program. So, you know, um, not to accept as that literally the Christianity is the only way or Catholicism is the only way to be saved. That's that sort of thing people are skeptical of. Um, and so, you know, what we have is a landscape marked by individual choice. So far, um, what, we're, what we're discovering is that the number of young people especially who are making the choice to describe themselves as having a fixed religious identity has fallen, and fallen pretty sharply, but it's now about 30 percent who say they're not religious. So even around here, 70 percent of the least religious generation say, they're, say they have religious beliefs and values. And many of the people, if you look carefully at, at the Pew studies and other sorts of things, say they are not religious, but they have um, beliefs and values that are, that are aligned with religion. Um, and that's sort of what David was saying. Now, David also is concerned mostly about mainline Protestantism. Um, and that's a, you know, an organizational world in kind of institutional crisis. And they're very worried about those kinds of trends. Other groups are worried, but less so. We're speaking with Andrew Walsh, Associate Director of the Greenberg Center at Trinity College. We're looking at our state's religious identity, starting with the Puritans. When we come back from the break, we'll hear more from Professor Walsh about how faith communities spread throughout the state after Puritans, and we'll speak to a young pastor who can speak to the trends that we were just discussing. What is it like to lead a congregation in a place where religion isn't, doesn't appear front and center like in other states in our country? This is where we live. 
where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we're talking about religion in Connecticut, starting from a historical perspective. The state was founded by Puritans, and back then religion played a huge role in the lives of the early settlers. But what role does religion have in our lives today? To help us answer that question, Andrew Walsh has been in studio with us, Associate Director of the Greenberg Center at Trinity College. And now joining us is Jeff Lukens, Pastor of Lordship Community Church in Stratford, Connecticut. If you have a question for our guest, 860-275-7266. We're interested in how uh, religion plays a role in your life, 860-275-7266. Pastor Jeff Lukens, welcome to Where We Live. Good morning. Great to be here. So I'm reading here that your church is part of the United Church of Christ Congregationalist Churches. So we were talking about the Puritans uh, earlier in the hour. What would they think if they were to sit in on your Sunday service? Hmm. Well, yeah, well, the United Church of Christ, uh, we're the direct descendants of the pilgrims. Um, and, uh, you know, we're part of the, the congregational churches that grew out of Puritanism and pilgrims, uh, merged with a whole bunch of other churches in 1957, came together to become the United Church of Christ. Um, uh, the my first impression when uh, asked you know if uh, what the Puritans would think is they say wow that was really short. Um, you know, <laughs> they would be in church all day on Sundays and you know we're there for an yes. hour maybe. Yeah. Um, the preacher back then would preach for a couple hours. Um, I'm feeling long if I go more than fifteen minutes. Um, so that that's part of it. Um, also, you know, in the United Church of Christ, we say that we, uh, you know, move away from dogma, move away from doctrinal. We uh, have testimonies, testimonies of faith, not tests of faith. Um, we've kind of moved away from that Calvinistic um, feeling of, uh, of, you know, total depravity. Um, and we still believe that we're, we're only saved by God's grace, but we also believe that that's available to all, no matter what. Uh, Jesus came to save everybody, and, and we're, we're, we celebrate God's wide welcome and extravagant love for everybody. Unlike the Puritans way back when. Right, who said, <laughs> no, only a few, only a few, but no, we, we believe it's, it's for all. So we were hearing from Andrew Walsh about trends, um, and while um, the Pew uh, study had asked people if they were very religious, um, some people still believe in Connecticut in some kind of faith. They do go to church. And so how are you seeing uh, the role of religion changing um, here in New England? Oh, we're, we're in, the, in the middle of a, a big change in, in the church. Um, it's been changing for, you know, it's been changing over the last 60 years or so. Uh, it's part of the, a larger change in our culture. Uh, and uh, similar to, it's very similar to the Reformation of about 500 years ago. Uh, the late Phyllis Tickle, church historian, talked about the, this theory that the church undergoes a great big rummage sale, is what she calls it, every 500 years or so. And we're in the middle of one right now. I mean, 500 years ago was you know the Great Reformation, and then you think about 500 years before that um, was the Great Schism between the, uh, the split of the Eastern and the Western churches. About 500 years before that was Gregory the Great. Uh, who led the church into the dark ages by founding monasticism and about 500 years before that, you know, the birth of Christ. And you can take that back further uh, into uh, Judaism and, and, and play that out a little bit more too. Um, but so we're in this middle of this huge change in the church. And you know, part of it is we're trying to figure it out as we go. Um, let's speak a little bit to what Andrew was talking about. You know, in 1955, people did go to church uh, because that's what they always did. Uh, they go to 
They go to the churches where their parents always went. They move to a new community. They find the same church, the same denomination that they went to. Um, and you went to church 60 years ago out of obligation because that's what you did. It was the cultural accepted norm to go to church. And today, that's not the case. Um, even with 70% or so in New England saying that they're religious, uh, statistics show that around 10% of people actually go to church regularly. And regularly is defined as about once a month. So it's even if people are, are claiming to be religious, they're still not practicing by going to church. They're practicing in other ways. So how do you um, attract people to your church? You can't. Uh, in today's culture, that old model of attraction does not work. Uh, so we're, we do a lot of talk about invitational ministry, mm-hmm. uh, where we go and we um, talk to people we already know, our, our friends already. And chances are most of our friends don't go to church. And so we, in normal conversations, we just talk about our faith, uh, what it means to us, why it's important to us, and invite them to you know, things we're doing as a church, maybe a mission project, maybe a fun event, and eventually you know, they get connected and they meet some of the people in our church, and eventually we'll invite them to worship. It's a different world. Andrew, what do you think of that, about the idea that you can't attract uh, people to congregations like, like we might have been able to uh, 50 years ago? Well, I think it's a uh, it's a broad sphere. There there are uh, religious organizations succeeding at doing something like that, but most are not. Um, one of the challenges here is religion is not a you know a singular thing. There are lots of religions. They function differently. They have different internal dynamics and expectations. All sorts of factors play here. Immigrants, immigration status. Uh, how long you've been in a community, uh, what your education is, what you're looking for, how independent of institutions uh, you feel. One whole set of factors here has to do with the reality that people relied on local institutions profoundly to live their lives until relatively recent times. And now they don't really have to um, and, and often don't. Uh, on the other hand, there are still joiners. Um, you know, there are people who who join NP- WNPR uh, and, and feel good about that. And that's true in religion as well. But if you look, you have to look across a very broad range of religions now to see the variety of this sort of stuff. Muslims don't behave like Congregationalists, don't behave like Catholics, don't behave like Greek Orthodox. Um, and that makes it hard to have a general discussion in society um, in a way that lots of people want to. And in lots of other parts of the country, there's less religious diversity than there is, for example, around here and less secularity. And and you can tell in this country that that's, you know, that there are people who deeply wish that we were less secular than, than we are. And, you know, the, the truth about the history is many people tend to perceive Religion has as being sort of in decline since 1700, in a straight in a straight down sort of way, when in fact things wander around up and down, and it's entirely possible that the declines of the last several decades will reverse in some way to some degree. They certainly are local exceptions to that all the time, uh, but if you're running a small local United Church of Christ congregation in New England. Um, it can be pretty tough. Across town, there may be a quite large megachurch, 
that's doing things in a in a very different way with a different kind of clientele and a different theology, and they might be going. We have megachurches in New England now. We used not to. Mm-hmm. Um, our megachurches were Catholic parishes. Uh, and so, uh, you know, it's a pretty murky, complicated scene, and one of the real issues is there are lots of different religions, and they have different appeals, and people respond to them differently. And there are groups that are in trouble and groups that are growing and groups that are in the middle. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We're talking about the role of religion, um, that role that is in Connecticut today. And if you are a member of a church, we want to hear from you, 860-275-7266. What led you to join a church or to keep that faith going that um, maybe your parents raised you in? We want to hear from you again at 860-275-7266. You can always find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. I wanted to turn back to Jeff Lukens, again, pastor of Lordship Community Church in Stratford, you know, one of the reasons we wanted to reach out to you is, um, you know, you're a young pastor. Um, I grew up in a, in a Catholic household, and all of the priests were fairly old. And so I'm curious, as we look at the trend of, you know, is it hard to attract uh, new people to your congregation? Does it help that you're a young person um, and that other younger people are, are interested in that part of, of your community? Oh, yeah, well, I'm relatively young, yes, uh, as, uh, compared to... Most clergy, absolutely. Um, it, it does help, uh, especially, um, you know, it's, uh, in some ways that, you know, churches are always looking to attract that mythical young family. Uh, and, and it helps to have a, you know, a young pastor with the, with, with the young family um, in there. Um, and a lot of what I'm doing is, you know, just connecting with the community, even um Lordship is a small section of Stratford, but it's a very tight-knit community, and it's, um, um, it's, it's a neighborhood that's starting to get younger, and young, younger families are moving in, and I've got kids who are, are, are beginning school, and I'm getting involved with uh, scouts and the PTA, and getting, getting to know those families. And um, even though uh, these families might not be showing up for worship on Sunday morning, some of them are considering me to be their pastor um, me and the church to be their church. Um, I'm, I'm noticing that a lot of my ministry happens outside of the church, uh, outside of your normal uh, Sunday mornings that happens in the community. And, that, and that's a, a big shift. Uh, it's, and min, it's ministry to people who, who might never come into the church building, but they consider me their pastor. We're getting a tweet from a listener. Uh, Emily or Courtney says, I've been working as a church musician for the past decade, and while I identify as a Christian, I'm so turned off by politics, I can't bring myself to attend regularly when I'm not working. What do you think about that comment, uh, Pastor Lukens? Hmm. Uh, a lot of times, um, you know, what I hear, oh, your sermon was too political. Um, what they're really going at is your sermon was uh, too biblical, but it, it's not. It doesn't line up with my political beliefs. Um, Jesus was a political figure, uh, and a lot of what he was talking about was uh, railing against the empire, railing against uh, the status quo, and um, railing against the the fear of the that the Roman Empire would be, um, you know, putting in against or you know this narrative of fear that the Roman Empire would be using to suppress the people. Um, and that uh, actually has lots of corollaries to today. Um, I've been doing a lot of work of pushing back on that narrative of fear, uh, 
because it seems that over the last 15 years or so since you know probably 9/11 fear has been this commodity that's been and it's been more and more difficult for us to remain immune from feeling this the despair and fear that permeates our culture and it seems that the powers of be continue to capitalize on this fear for a profit media uh takes our the cable news and the media takes our the fears and capitalizes on them leaders mention war on terror enough times and we and all the other issues are forgotten and it seems fear seems to be dominating the ethos of our time it's motivating us this is where we live i'm lucy nalbathanchel we're hearing from some uh callers now uh bill from middletown you're on where we live Hi, um, uh, Bill. Calling. I um, left my uh, religion of origin, um, but I uh, uh, about 15 years ago I had a, a kind of a spiritual crisis, and um, I was very new agey at the time, and and what I believed in didn't work. So I went into a, a church one day, a Catholic church, and I sat there, and I got the overwhelming feeling this is where I belong. And um, I came back, uh, but I came back on on kind of my own terms with some uh, caveats, shall we say. And um, uh, ever since then, uh, it's been a great source of inspiration to me. That and uh, my program of Alcoholics Anonymous go together very, very well. They fit like a glove. And um, I cherish both of them, and I get a lot of inspiration from them. And I don't know how people who don't have those kinds of resources get along in this crazy world today. Thank you. Well, thank you, Bill. And so Bill's speaking to the sense of community, um, uh, Pastor Lukens and then Andrew. Is that something that brings people uh, back more, to the church? More than that, to the sense of transcendence available in the church. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's talking about how he felt in church. Mm-hmm. A f- felt part healed. And part of and that's a supernatural kind of experience. That's the content of religious experience. So he's telling you something that's in line with many of the things that we've been talking about. He finds religion important. He finds religion powerful. He finds religion uh, is best taken according to one's own experiences and judgments. So he's saying, I'm back in the Catholic community, but he made a point of saying, I'm not 100% with the program. That's super typical. Pastor Lucas? Yeah. Um, on this idea of community, absolutely. Um, you know, there's Today we have all these people, all these voices telling us that we can connect with God anywhere, on a hike, at the beach, uh, over brunch with friends, uh, or sitting alone just enjoying a cup of coffee. We can have those transcendent experiences. And and that's true, but I, I also believe it's, it's not enough. We need to be in community. At the end of the day, solitary spiritual life is still solitary. Um, so I think we need the church. We need that community. Uh, it doesn't give, mean we, we're giving up our identities as an individual when we become a part of a church. I mean, we can still not, we don't have to toe the party line of the church. We can still have our own beliefs and, and challenge them, But because we each bring our own whole selves to the church. And we're choosing, when we're part of the church, we choose to connect with um, others on their own faith journeys. And we're creating from the very beginning this community uh, of faith. Another tweet from a listener, Maria Grove, uh, writes, I'm a Catholic and involved in my church, but I value living in a secular state where I can celebrate all religions or none. And Andrew, you were saying that's typical. I think it is of the monitor. There's, we have great respect for the beliefs of others and have lost almost entirely the desire, in New England anyway, the desire to sort of 
force other people to do things. Um, that isn't true of the national discourse. There are still people who want a privileged locate, you know, a privileged status for Christianity in the society. Um, and whether that's a rearguard action or something else, I don't know yet. But that's par- that's part of the story. But very few people, especially around here, accept a version of things which begins by saying my religion is right and your religion is wrong. They tend to they tend to see and to look for bridges and for ways to respect one another, um, and that's a modern sort of thing. I mean, lots lots has happened between Puritanism and now. Um, among the things that's, that have happened is that most people um, accept a scientific worldview, not a kind of, uh, you know, supernatural worldview. Um, and that makes a big difference in how people think about things and the degree to which they're willing to go to force other stuff. In the 17th century in Massachusetts, they're willing to execute Quakers for being inconvenient and for insisting on being heard in public. Um, they're willing to pass laws which say Catholic priests who are, you know, who come to Massachusetts are going to get thrown out. If they come back, it's a death sentence. That's not, a, a lot has happened, and a lot of it was happening in the colonial era where people realized that there's too much religious diversity for, for any one group to have that kind of power. Uh, the truth in New England is that the, the congregational elite and the Calvinists gave ground very slowly. And so, you know, the, the, the congregationalism is a state religion to which almost everyone paid taxes to support until the early 19th century. That's later than people realize it. And Connecticut's politicians did a deal when the Bill of Rights was adapted to make sure that the congregational establishment in Connecticut was preserved. So people fought for those things, uh, but, and it morphs pretty slowly. But if you put that together with the idea that individuals have the right to choose what their religious perspective will be or what their religious identity will be, um, and a world in which you don't say God's punishing us by sending hurricanes or the cow's been killed because some um, malevolent force out there. One of the things that's hard to recapture about the 17th century for us is that there were no coincidences in that world. There were no happenstances. They didn't know the germs caused disease. They didn't understand, you know, patterns in the weather. Those things were all direct messages to them. Mm-hmm. And they were either benevolent or malevolent. And that's why we and that's why we end up having witches and that sort of stuff. Later people believed that witchcraft was nonsense and there weren't any witches. That's not what they thought in the 17th century. I want to take a call before break. Um, Tony, uh, you're calling uh, where we live. Thanks for the call. Oh, hi. I'm just over the border from New England in Westchester County. My question is related to what you're saying, but it's, of course, confu- a little bit confused because all of these questions are confused. Um, if the question is, I grew up in a, I'm still staying in a mainline church, um, but the congregation has changed quite a lot. When I was growing up, people were either born into that church or um, there was, it was the, it's the Episcopal Church, so there were also this sort of this international thing going on. But um, now there are a lot of Catholics coming into the church. There are um, a lot of Jewish converts. There are people who just seem to walk in. And I guess my question is, um, it's almost like, uh, does the quality of the uh, church experience change when the congregation changes more to this 
um, choice-based uh, um, faith experience in addition to having um, a rector who's, or, or the, I guess the clergy who have to be sort of passive in inviting them in. It's like they're kind of like letting everybody in, but there's no homogeneity to give it that kind of push. Or am I completely being a bad Christian here? <laughs> well, Tony, thank you for your call. I'll let uh, Pastor <clears throat> Lukens answer this. Well, I uh, think that uh, the quality of a church when it, as it diversifies, uh, gets so much better because um, when we are in homogeneous communities, we we are missing out on so much of the other, what the other cultures are bringing into worship. Um, you, uh, I recently was worshiping with um, an African American church in town, and just the the, the different styles I had, were, were things that I rarely ever experienced. The preaching styles, the music styles, and I had a completely different experience. It was a, a transcendent experience there. Um, and the same when, when um, in the United Church of Christ, we have a, a quite a few Pacific Island congregations. And when we get together as a denomination, they share their worship. And it's different than what we in New England, where we're mostly a white church, and um, than we ever see. And, it was, and it was, it's pretty amazing. So I think as the church diversifies your worship experience, you get all sorts of different kinds of worship experience. Um, and... Uh, and it, it it just enriches uh, my experience of God and of the divine when I'm when I'm experiencing it that way. I want to thank Pastor uh, Jeff Lukens of Lordship Community Church in Stratford, Connecticut, for coming on the show today. Also, thank you to Andrew Walsh, Associate Director of the Greenberg Center at Trinity College. Uh, when we come back from break, we're going to find out more about a religion you may not know a lot about: Mormonism. This is where we live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up Monday, last month, several of Connecticut's 911 call centers experienced a temporary system outage. The breakdown occurred amid a $13.2 million upgrade to the state's dated infrastructure. On the next Where We Live, we'll take a closer look at what happened and consider what's being done to bring 911 technology into the 21st century. Today we've been talking about the role of religion in Connecticut. And did you know a Mormon temple is being built in Farmington, Connecticut? Most often people think of Utah when they, when they consider Mormons or the Latter-day Saints community. We wanted to find out more about the Mormons' connection here in Connecticut. So joining us now is Kevin Starr, coordinator of the Open House and Dedication Committee for the Hartford, Connecticut Temple, and Kelly Jacobs, a public affairs representative for, again, the Hartford, Connecticut Temple. Welcome to where we live. Thank you for having us. We're delighted to be here. So I'll start with you, Kelly. Um, tell us about the Connecticut Temple. I just learned about this a couple weeks ago, that there's a Mormon temple being built in Farmington. It's soon to be completed. Um, why Connecticut? Oh, well, we're, we're delighted that the temple is being built in Farmington. Uh, there are numerous reasons why this site was chosen. One of the most um, significant for us as members of our faith is that the our church began in New England, and the fourth president of our church, Wilfred Woodruff, was actually born in Farmington. And so this this place holds a significance to us. And we were especially pleased to work with the Townington or excuse me, the people in Farmington 
the community and the officials have been so welcoming and warm to us as people of our faith. And the location is beautiful. Right along um, a beautiful field and forest and right on Route 4. If you've driven past, I'm sure you've seen that. And we're just delighted to be able to have a temple closer to us. The nearest temples are in Boston and New York City, so a significant drive for those members of our faith who live in Connecticut. So to be able to have this temple here is just a delight for us. And Kevin, can I ask how many Mormons um, live here in Connecticut or in the region, so Rhode Island and, and elsewhere? There are approximately 15,000, 16,000 Mormons in the state of Connecticut itself. And in the region uh, surrounding the temple that uh, we are including in the dedication activities and the like, about 26,000 members of the church in that area. Um, when you encounter people um, who are not Mormon, are they surprised to learn that Mormons are here? A little bit. I think that's that, that's the case. Uh, it, we're a relatively small number. We're growing. Um, but I think most folks uh, in the area know Mormons as good neighbors and uh, uh, people who are dedicated to their faith. Uh, so some are surprised, but uh, we are, are just delighted to be able to see this temple grow in Farmington and uh, to be part of the process of, of seeing that temple come to be. Uh, Earlier in the hour, we were talking with a historian and a UCC pastor about the history of religion, um, how it has evolved um, from our Puritan days. Um, does it help that um, this part of the country is very open to many different uh, faiths and, and uh, cultures? Uh, do you feel more welcomed here than maybe other parts of the country? Kelly? <laughs> we were just discussing this as we were listening to the earlier parts of your program. Um, I have personally felt, as I have been living here in New England, a, a great acceptance by my friends and neighbors of my faith. Um, in living in other parts of the country, which I have before, I've sometimes experienced more misconceptions about my faith, uh, uh, more prejudice. And I have not experienced that here. It, it really has been a delight to see how welcoming people have been to other forms of connection with God. And I've had some opportunity in my calling to be able to interact with interfaith groups and really to be able to connect and see the way other people um, interact with God does increase my own faith. And I really feel from my neighbors and those that I interact with that same sense that, you know, as we together talk about our individual interactions with God, where our spiritual lives are enriched. And uh, that's something that I really appreciated about living here. You mentioned uh, misconceptions. Did you want to clear up some since we're, you're on the air and we have many <laughs> listeners from many different uh, cultures and, and faith backgrounds who may not know a lot about Mormonism? So what are some of the things that people, uh, when they think of Mormons, they think of that is not an accurate representation? Well, since we're talking about the temple today, let me perhaps focus on that a little bit, if I might. Uh, it's a thrill to have the temple coming to Farmington and to see uh, the opportunity of having a temple nearby here. One of the misconceptions that many people have is what's the difference between a meeting house and a temple? Because we have many meeting houses in Connecticut. We have uh, three uh, and, and portions of a fourth, what we call stakes, which are groups of congregations similar to dioceses. We have about 30 or 35 congregations in the state. And each of those has a meeting house, which is common for its Sunday meetings, its worship services, sacramental services, services also for meetings during the week for youth groups and other types of things, many activities. 
and a lot of instruction goes on in those meeting houses. However, a temple itself, people don't recognize the difference for us is very great. A temple is a building that is dedicated specifically to be the house of the Lord. We call it the house of the Lord and deem it to be that, a, a very special spiritual place where his spirit resides. You will see that inscription on the front of the temple as it's completed, the house of the Lord. It is dedicated for very special purposes where we learn of Jesus Christ, where we worship Jesus Christ, where we receive instruction, where we make promises and make covenants, and where we receive through prayer and through meditation and reflection a great deal of inspiration from the Spirit that is within the temple. It's a very special place, very different from our uh, everyday, if you might say, meeting houses and something that is very specific and dedicated for the use of the members and for the attendance by the members of the church. And the temple is, is opening in mid-September, is that right? Well, the, the, the initial open house for the public will be in mid-September, and I'd like to mention that, if I might, for a moment. Uh, after the temple is dedicated, which will occur later on in November, actually, the temple is open only to members of the church uh, who are striving to keep the commandments of God and who are uh, preparing themselves for the covenants and ordinances that are there. So prior to that time, because it is such a beautiful building and because its spirit is so strong, we like to have the opportunity to open the temple for tours for the public so they have a chance to see the beauty of the building, to experience its great spirit, and to understand a little bit more about how it's used and what goes on there. We will be having a public open house starting September 30th, and it will run most days through October 22nd. I say most days because it will be closed on Sundays. We won't have those open houses on Sundays. It will be uh, also closed on October 1st because there's a conflict there with one of our worldwide conferences that is scheduled. And we also uh, will not be having the open house on Monday evenings because we try to stay together as families on Monday evenings in our church um, and reserve those times for family strengthening. That public open house will offer tours for anybody who wants to view the temple and understand more about it. The hours will generally be from 10 in the morning until last tour at 8 o'clock in the evening, except on Mondays it'll be 6 o'clock in the evening. And those tours will be available by reservation because we're trying to uh, manage the flow and the volume of people and trying to manage the parking and make sure the facilities will be good for everybody's uh, experience there. Uh, and the reservations for that open house will be available starting September 1st and are very easy to acquire. Uh, those reservations can be found uh, at the website templeopenhouse.lds.org. If you were to visit there, you will see that the reservations for the Hartford Temple are not a- available until September 1st. However, you will also see the other temples there that are undergoing uh, open houses are available. For example, there is a large public open house starting for the Philadelphia Temple, which was just recently completed. And that open house is uh, starting this coming Wednesday, and reservations are available for that. Well, I will try to put some of that uh, information on our website. I wanted to turn back to Kelly Jacobs, again, public affairs representative for the Hartford, Connecticut Temple. Um, you had said that um, the community seems very um, welcoming, um, and there's a lot that you, um, as a Mormon, do with uh, interfaith uh, community. Um, what's something that you do to increase diversity? Because, so, again, people think that Mormons are, again, they all live on the western side of the country, and they're all white, and that's not the case, is it? Uh, certainly not in our congregations in Connecticut. There is just a, a degree of diversity that comes with those who have joined the various congregations. Um, I wouldn't say necessarily that we're 
we're actively looking to increase diversity. We're just welcoming any and all to come to Christ and to worship together with us. Listening to Kevin talk earlier, that reminded me of what I would say is the main misconception I find with my neighbors and friends, and that is, you know, what is what is our central or core belief? And we follow Jesus Christ. And um, that was a surprise to some of my neighbors. You know, they're used to hearing that term Mormon and not associating it with Christianity. And um, everything that we do in the temple, as Kevin mentioned, is to is to try to direct us to be better followers of Christ, to be better husbands and wives, to be more willing to share with others and to help take care of each other and to be kinder and more patient in our families. And that's actually a question we're getting from a a caller. We won't have enough time to take it, but he was asking the difference between the Mormon faith and the Christian faith. Well, uh, we consider ourselves Christians. I've tried to, Kevin and I, try to center our lives on Christ's teachings. So that is a real common misconception of Mormons. And you had mentioned, again, uh, the temple. Uh, there is a connection with uh, someone who lived a long time ago uh, from Connecticut. This is uh, Wilfred Woodruff? Yes. That's correct. And so um, any uh, family members from a long time ago that you can trace to that family that will that is still are still in Connecticut? We just have under a minute. Uh, I don't know if there are many in Connecticut, but certainly there is actually a Wilfred Woodruff family association that is quite active and traces his history. Uh, his history is quite unique and interesting. Uh, and I would add just to what Kelly said a moment ago about your question on misconceptions. Uh, the church is a worldwide church, not a church of the West Coast or anything of that nature. It's truly a worldwide church and growing greatly across the world. And they'll m- hopefully learn more about it when the community is invited for that open house uh, for the Connecticut Temple. I want to thank uh, Kevin Starr, coordinator of the Open House and Dedication Committee for the Hartford Connecticut Temple. Also, Kelly Jacobs, public affairs representative for the Hartford Connecticut Temple. You can continue this conversation on our website, wmpr.org slash where we live, where we'll have more information. And I want to thank Jeff Tyson for producing the show, Kay Talarski and Lydia Brown. This is where we live.